Well, kids, uh, let me have your attention for a moment this morning. I know many of you are looking forward to a Thanksgiving meal this week. Maybe some of you are looking forward to two or three different Thanksgiving meals. Maybe you get to see your grandparents, your aunts and uncles, your cousins, and your friends. One of the things that you might do at a Thanksgiving meal is go around the table and share what you are thankful for. Now, if this is a tradition that you do in your family, have you thought about what you are going to say this year? Now, I know it can be a little difficult and awkward sometimes in those moments, but the psalm that I'm going to talk to you about this morning, it helps us see three things. It helps us see who to give thanks to, what we should give thanks for, and how we can give thanks to God in hard circumstances. So listen in and see what God says in this psalm about giving thanks, and hopefully I can give you a little head start in preparing you for your Thanksgiving meal. Now, there was an interesting article that came out in 2014 in The Atlantic. It was titled, Gratitude Without God. Now, in this article, the author tries to wrestle with the idea of how can we understand thankfulness and gratitude apart from God. See, because many non-Christians would also see the value of being thankful. But what does it even mean to be thankful from a secular perspective? The article gave this definition of thankfulness from a secular perspective. He says this, we all begin life dependent on others. Most of us end life dependent on others. If we are lucky, in between we have roughly 60 years or so of unacknowledged dependency. The human condition is such that throughout life, not just at the beginning and end, we are profoundly dependent on other people. Gratitude, then, is the truest approach to life. We did not create or fashion ourselves. We did not birth ourselves. Life is about giving, receiving, and repaying. We are receptive beings, dependent on the help of others, on the gifts on their gifts and their kindness. I found this definition absolutely fascinating. And as Christians, there is much in this definition that we can agree with, specifically how each of us are dependent on others for the good in our lives. But I'm not sure if you observe that there is a glaring omission in the definition. The glaring omission is God, the one whom we owe our ultimate thanksgiving. Now, when God is removed from the picture, all that remains is a shallow version of thanksgiving to everyone except for God. And Thanksgiving Day becomes a cultural norm that everyone agrees is a good thing, but totally untethered from the ultimate reality of God being the creator, redeemer, and sustainer of this world. Another thing to notice in this definition is that when God is removed as the object of our thanksgiving, we cannot make sense of sin and evil that remains in this world. How can we make sense of the pain and suffering in this world? How can we give thanks when there is so much disease, violence, injustice in this world? See, the shallowness of secular thanksgiving cannot account for the deep-rooted purposes of sin and evil and bringing deeper praise and thanksgiving to God. Now, maybe you're here this morning, and you can fully agree with the psalmist when he says that it is good to give thanks. 
No kidding, Mr. Shamus. Tell me something I don't know. But maybe like me, you know that it is good to give thanks, but you are prone to ungratefulness, envy, complaining, and a lack of contentment, which keeps you from giving thanks to God. Or maybe you're walking through dark circumstances in your life, and when you, even though you know it is good to give thanks, you wonder, how can I possibly give thanks when there is so much pain and suffering in my life? This psalm was written to be sung during the Sabbath when the people of Israel gathered together for worship. And through this psalm, God reorients the hearts and minds of his people to see the purpose of thanksgiving and how it is possible to give thanks to God in a world that is marred by sin and death. I have two main points this morning. The nature and content of giving thanks. And under this point, the psalmist is going to answer three questions for us. To whom should we give thanks, how should we give thanks, and what should we give thanks for? My second point is going to be the difficulties of giving thanks. Under this point, the psalmist is going to answer two questions for us. What about the enemies that plague my life? And what about my uncertain future? And by answering these questions, I believe the psalmist is helping the congregation understand the basics of giving thanks to God and also responds to the common difficulties that people of Israel experience that kept them from giving thanks to God. Now, we will answer these questions as we broadly consider how this psalm points forward and ultimately is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross. This psalm was a blueprint for the people of Israel in giving thanks to God, and I pray that it will be the same for us today in helping us give thanks to God. So first point, the nature and content of giving thanks. To whom should we give thanks? The psalmist begins with affirming the goodness of giving thanks to God, and he says, it is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High. Now, this is obviously the most important point where Christians differ from non-Christians. Our culture defines Thanksgiving as a general sense of gratitude to others, or maybe a tip of a hat to a vague, unseen power. But the psalmist has a definite object in mind for our Thanksgiving. There are many things we can be thankful for in our lives. There's many people we can be thankful for. But Thanksgiving must ultimately be directed to the source of all that is good to the Lord. And not to any God, but to Yahweh, the one true God, who was called in this verse the Most High, which means that there is no one greater, no one higher than the God of Israel. So what's the answer? To whom should we give thanks? We must ultimately give thanks to God, who is the source of all that is good. Next question. How should we give thanks to God? Now, again, there's many ways in which we can give thanks to God, but the ones highlighted in this psalm emphasize the verbal, public, and joyful nature of how we should give thanks to God. Now, Thanksgiving is different than gratitude. I think gratitude is important, and it speaks of the disposition of our heart in giving thanks to God. But I don't believe gratitude is sufficient. The psalmist emphasizes that our Thanksgiving requires us to speak out with our mouth. Look at verse 1b. 
to sing praises to your name, O Most High. In verse 2, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. You see, thanksgiving is more than just gratitude. It requires us to speak, to declare, to sing to God. Now think about this for a moment. Are you a thankful person? It's going to be evident in the words you speak and the songs you sing. You know, not grumbling and not complaining is only half the battle. Replacing it with words of thanksgiving on our lips to God is the other half and the true essence of thanksgiving. Now, not only should we speak and declare our thanksgiving, but the psalmist also wants us to do so publicly. Thanksgiving is not a private matter alone. If you notice in the superscript of your psalm, it indicates that the psalm was a psalm of the Sabbath. And it was sung as the people of Israel gathered for worship, emphasizing the importance of the corporate and public nature of thanksgiving. Friends, thanksgiving is not a whisper. It shouts to everyone in earshot, Great are you, Lord! Isn't it encouraging to hear the person next to you loudly declare praise to God when we worship together? It's contagious. It fills us with faith. It fills us with focus and thanksgiving. Now, now thanksgiving is not just a matter of saying or singing the right things about God. It is not sufficient to just do so publicly and corporately. But verse 4 and 5, the psalmist tells us that thanksgiving must be a result of joy. Verse 4 and 5, For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. Now in thanksgiving, it is not only our mind that is at work in giving in thinking right things about God. It is not only our mouths that are at work in declaring praises, but our affections must also be ignited as we give thanks to God. Notice also in this verse that the gladness and joy that the psalmist experiences is, is not something that he conjures up on his own, but is a work of God. God is the one who makes him glad. God is the one who causes him to sing for joy. So what's the answer to this question? How should we give thanks to God? The psalmist tells us we should joyfully give thanks to God with our words in public. And if you struggle with this, as we all do, we must ask the Lord, we must ask the Spirit to fill us with joy that overflows in words of thanksgiving that we can speak loudly to our friends and family about the greatness of our God. Now, what should we give thanks for? What is, should be the content of our thanksgiving? The psalmist gives us specific content for our thanksgiving. It's not left to us to determine what we should give thanks to God for. God himself reveals to us what is fitting to bring him glory. Now, the two categories for the content of our thanksgiving in this psalm are, one, God's nature. These are his attributes. This is his character. And two, God's works, what God has done. So let's consider each in turn. First, we must give thanks to God for who he is. Verse 2, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. 
The focus of thanksgiving always begins with who God is, his nature, his attributes, his perfections. Apart from anything that God does for us, God is worthy of thanksgiving and praise simply because he is God. But our God is also merciful and gracious. He is righteous and just. He is faithful. He is loving. He is all-powerful. He is wise and good. And these attributes of God ought to be the primary content of our thanksgiving to him. Second, we should give thanks to God for his works. Not only who he is, but what he has done for us. And this is important and just as important as the first because since we as creatures come to know God intimately through his works, through what he has done for us. Verse 4 and 5 say this, For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works. Now, what are the works of God that the psalmist here is speaking of? He's speaking of all of God's works that he can think of. Now, broadly speaking, the works of God have been described in three distinct categories. His works in creation, his works in redemption, and his works in providence. Let me just spend a few moments on each. So creation, these are the works of God that can be seen in the blessings of life, in health, in food, in clothing, in jobs, in government, in marriage, and family. These are all examples of God's common grace to all of humanity that we should be thankful for. And these are things that most non-Christians are even thankful for, even though they do not give thanks to God for them. Two, redemption. These are the works of God specifically to his people whom he redeems through the person and works of Jesus Christ, as well as his works in reversing the curse that sits on all of creation. So this includes his works of election, justification, adoption, final glorification, as well as restoring all of creation to its Edenic state. These are God's works of redemption. Finally, providence. Now, these are the works of God by which he preserves and governs all things that come to pass. This includes how he is sovereign over all events of history, including the rise and fall of nations, all the way down to the minute details and purposes that he brings about in your lives, the good circumstances and the difficult circumstances in your lives. So that's a summary of all of God's works that we can see and give thanks for. So what should we give thanks for? We must give thanks to God for who he is and for all of his works in creation, redemption, and providence. Now, among the works of God in creation, redemption, and providence, I think it is probably the hardest to give thanks to God for his providence the way he goes about managing our lives. We often wonder, God, why do you have to go about doing the things you do the way that you do them, especially in my life? God, is that really the best way to go about things? I would do it differently. 
we struggle with God's providence because his thoughts are too deep for us, and we are often kept in the dark about his good purposes for us. As we come to the next section in this psalm, the psalmist wants to bring clarity to one aspect of God's providence that often seems confusing to God's people. It is this question. How can I give thanks to God when I can't understand what he is doing and why he is doing it that way? Especially in the way in which my enemies still plague my life. Point number two, the difficulties in giving thanks. What about the enemies that plague our life? The psalmist would be aware that this is a normal question that a faithful Israelite would be struggling with. Why does it seem like the wicked flourish? Why are the enemies of Israel always surrounding us, ready to overcome us? It almost seems like God does not care. Look at verse 6 and 7. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. The words here, stupid and fool, are biblical words and they are not to be used lightly. They are reserved in the Bible for those who live their lives with complete disregard for God. The psalmist here is saying that the fool cannot understand God's way, but if you trust God, you can understand his ways. The psalmist here is trying to help those who are weak in faith in the congregation who think that the enemies of Israel will surely overwhelm them. Now, if you look at the history of Israel since Abraham, Israel has always been afflicted by her enemies. The Canaanites in the land of Israel, constant clashings with the Philistines, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and later they were conquered by the superpowers of Assyria and Babylon. It's only a very few times in Israel's history that they were not under constant threat and affliction from her enemies. So the psalmist here is trying to be helpful to the congregation. He wants to remind the people of Israel that no, even though Israel's enemies seem to prosper for a moment, they are doomed to destruction. Verse 9 promises that the enemies shall perish and all evildoers will be scattered. Now, while God's people no longer exist as a nation state as the people of Israel did, surrounded by God's enemies, we as the people of God still have powerful enemies that surround us. The enemies of sin, of death, the world, and the devil. Now, do you believe that these enemies of yours will be destroyed, or do you think that these enemies will ultimately destroy you? Now, if we are honest, we often think our enemies will have the final word on us. We think our struggle against sin is pointless, and sin will ultimately have victory over us. We sense that the disease that afflicts our body will overtake us and finally destroy us. We often wonder if the devil will continue his damage and the kingdom of darkness will win and prosper in our world. And when it feels like these enemies are going to win, 
it is extremely hard to be thankful, isn't it? But if you belong to God, we have hope. And verse 10 gives us a different prognosis than our faint hearts often believe. But you, God, have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. God has chosen a different outcome for his people, one that results in our exaltation and the certain defeat of our enemies. Look at verse 11. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The psalmist here has seen and heard about the defeat of the enemies of God. He's likely referring to something that has happened in Israel's history, which has become the basis of his confidence that God indeed will defeat Israel's enemies in the future. Now, the psalmist could have been alluding to God's defeat of Egypt when Israel was under bondage, or many other smaller ways throughout Israel's history when God intervened and destroyed Israel's enemies. And by doing this, the psalmist is helping the congregation rehearse the ultimate story of God's enemies being defeated and God conquering all evil. Now, can you see the downfall of your enemies this morning, of sin, of death, of the devil? If you're like me, it is really hard to picture that final reality through our clouded eyes and our dull imaginations. But the words of the psalmist calls us to see and to hear the doom of our enemies. Where can we see and hear the doom of our enemies? Now, while the psalmist only saw a taste of God's redemption of Israel in the past, we have the privilege of looking back and seeing and hearing the doom of God's enemies at the cross of Jesus Christ. It was on their cross where it seemed like the enemies of God had won. Instead, it was the very place where sin lost its power over us. It was in the grave where it seemed that death had the final word. Instead, through the resurrection, we see that death received a deathly blow, and all the powers of evil in the unseen realms, including the devil, were brought to their knees. Do you see that? This morning, do you hear the downfall of our enemies at the cross? Do you hear the whimpers of the devil when Jesus rose from the dead? So what does the psalmist tell us? How do the enemies, what about the enemies that plague my life? For those who are in Christ, we will not be overcome by our enemies since they received a crushing blow at the death and resurrection of Jesus. That is our hope this morning. Now with this, we come to the final difficulty that the psalmist wants us to answer for the congregation through this psalm. Well, I see that, but what about my uncertain future? 
You might say, yes, I see and believe that sin, death, and devil were dealt a deathly blow in the death and resurrection of Jesus, but sin still exists in my life. Death and disease are still powerful, and the devil still seems to be at work in this world. Yes, these remain realities in our fallen world. Yet, it is the good and sure promises of the gospel that tell us clearly that we who belong to Christ have a bright and hopeful future in the presence of God. Verse 12 through 14, The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. The images of a flourishing palm tree and growing like the cedars of Lebanon stress the life and vigor and fullness that God promises to his people. The psalmist goes on to say that the righteous will be planted in the house of God to flourish in the courts of God. What an amazing promise to be planted in the very presence of God, protected from all of our enemies. Now, through Christ, we can experience some of that reality in this life, but we will experience it in full measure when we experience unhindered communion with God in His presence when Jesus returns. But until then, we wait. We wait in hope. But while we wait in hope, we still have the promise of flourishing in this life in the midst of our suffering. Look at verse 14 and 15. The righteous shall bear fruit in their old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Friends, there is purpose in your trial and suffering even today. You will not be consumed by your circumstances. You will not be overwhelmed by your enemies. As the psalmist here says, the goal for your life through your pain and suffering is to cause you to declare that God is upright, He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in Him. And this only comes with time, with walking through pain and trials and suffering. The psalmist here tells us that the righteous even bear fruit in their old age. Have you talked to someone who is older in age, who has walked with the Lord for a long time? I love hearing about the faithfulness of God through difficult circumstances in the lives of Sassy and Joe and Carol and Olga and many others who now look back at their lives and see the pain and suffering but can still with confidence say, the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. So friends, what about my uncertain future. If you belong to Christ, your future is certain. You will bear fruit even in this broken world and are destined to enjoy peace 
and joy in the presence of God forever. This is our sure and certain hope and reason for thanksgiving. The psalmist here wants the congregation to rehearse the works of God so they might see how God will overcome the pain and suffering in this life, resulting in greater thanksgiving and praise to God. Now, let me just close with a few points of application. Number one, consider how to give thanks in all circumstances. First Thessalonians says this, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I know there are many walking through bitter providences in your life this morning. Giving thanks might seem like an extremely hard thing to do, if not absolutely impossible. Let me just encourage you. God is not angry with you. God is not frustrated with you. He is not like us. He is patient and understanding. And there is space in this life for lament. There is space in this life for complaint towards God in the Christian life. There are many psalms that attest to this. But let me also encourage you that giving thanks is possible even in the midst of dark circumstances. The psalmist says this in verse 2, It is good to give thanks for the steadfast love of the Lord in the morning and His faithfulness by night. By this, he is certainly helping us see that God's love and faithfulness is upon us 24 hours a day, morning and at night. But he's also using the words morning and night, describing good circumstances and difficult circumstances. So, this morning, even in the midst of grief and sorrow, consider that this psalm is an invitation to you to see that God's faithfulness has not abandoned you in the night. He has promised to be with you, promised to strengthen you, promised to sustain you, and that alone can be a reason for thanks today. I believe the main point of this psalm for us today is this. We were created to recognize and give thanks to God for His steadfast love in the morning and His faithfulness by night. In good circumstances and difficult circumstances, God's steadfast love and faithfulness are reasons to give thanks. A couple other points of application. Consider how you can turn your grumbling into thanksgiving. Yeah, you don't want to hear this one, do you? I don't either. The congregation in the psalm was probably tempted to grumble about how their enemies always seemed to flourish and prosper. And we, just like them, can grumble about anything and everything, can't we? It's easy to grumble about COVID, gripe about our boss at work, easy to be frustrated with your spouse, easy to complain about your children. And kids, isn't it easy for you to complain about your parents? We are all guilty of this. But let me just remind you, grumbling is not a small sin. Remember the grumbling generation that Moses and Aaron led in the wilderness? 
they were kept from entering the promised land because of their grumbling. So we must beg, we must plead for the Holy Spirit to help us and replace our grumbling with thanksgiving. One passage I've meditated on quite a bit is Philippians 2. It says this, do all things, all things, all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. When we grumble and complain, we sound like the rest of the world. But our lips should be covered with thanksgiving so that we can shine as lights in the midst of this world. Finally, consider how you can expand and deepen the content of your thanksgiving. If you're like me, sometimes we just give thanks for the same things over and over again. And our thanksgiving sounds no different than the thanksgiving of the secular world. We thank God for our job, for health, for family, for friends. That's all good. And we should give thanks for those things. But maybe consider how you can broaden and deepen your thanksgiving to God. Consider how you can give thanks to God for who He is, for His character, for His attributes, for His perfections. And let that be the primary content of your thanksgiving. And then give thanks to God for his many works in creation, redemption, and providence. I'll leave this discretion question up for after the service. And consider this as you talk to one another. Which of these areas can you grow in giving thanks to God?